This is an ABC podcast. Hello, welcome to PM. I'm Samantha Donovan, coming to you from the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation in Melbourne. Tonight, New Zealand's Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern quitting politics, saying she's got nothing left in the tank. You can be kind but strong, empathetic but decisive, optimistic but focused. That you can be your own kind of leader, one that knows when it's time to go. Jacinda Ardern led New Zealand through the COVID pandemic and the nation's worst mass shooting. How will she be remembered? Prime Ministers are always going to alienate people, they're always going to polarise, and Ardern's done that. She's got a lot of people on the right unhappy with her. I think she can live with that. It's the fact that some of her own side on the left of politics have basically seen her as a betrayal. I think that's going to hurt her. And the city of Wyndham on Melbourne's western fringe takes the mantle of the fastest growing area in the country. We have between 110 and 130 babies born a week here in Wyndham. So that means that we need the equivalent of a new school every five weeks. In a move that shocked many, Jacinda Ardern has announced she's resigning from her position as New Zealand Prime Minister and will leave office by the 7th of February. She also confirmed an election will be held on October the 14th. Ms Ardern acknowledges there'll be speculation about her decision to leave, but she says her time as PM has been marked by several significant crises and she simply doesn't have the energy to continue leading the country. Bridget Fitzgerald prepared this report. As she choked back tears, Jacinda Ardern announced she'll be stepping down as Prime Minister. This summer I had hoped to find a way to prepare not just for another year, but another term, because that is what this year requires. I have not been able to do that. And so today I'm announcing that I will not be seeking re-election. And then my term as Prime Minister will conclude no later than the 7th of February. She says she doesn't have the energy to continue to lead the country. I know what this job takes and I know that I no longer have enough in the tank to do it justice. It's that simple. The resignation was announced during a press conference to confirm an election will be held on October 14. The news Ardern will not contest it came as a shock to many New Zealanders. Um, I don't believe it. <laughs> oh man, I, I thought she was all good. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I liked her. I thought everyone else liked her, man. Well, what, what, why did she do that? Well, I think she needs a break, to be honest. Yeah, she's done a lot. Wow, I wonder why. It was the closest held of secrets. Nobody had any inkling. Ben McKay is the New Zealand correspondent with the Australian Associated Press. Well, I was sitting in the front row of the press conference and you could tell something was slightly up. My my spidey senses first went off when her partner, Clark Gayford, actually came into the press conference and sat next to me. And that's usually a sign of big announcements coming. Ardern's departure will likely play a significant role as New Zealanders prepare to head to the polls later this year. It does completely recast the election. Now, National, the centre-right opposition, are already ahead in the polls or already favourites to, to, to deny Labor a third 
Ardern. And you'd think with the removal of Ardern, who has lost some of her popularity but still remains the most popular politician in the country, you'd think that puts them in uh, in poll position to win. But to be honest, I think we need to just take a breather. It does it does reset the sketch sketch just a little bit. Um, there'll be an, a leadership ballot for the with the Labor Party potentially as soon as Sunday to discover the new prime minister, and it's only then that we can really start to re configure our thinking around the election. On Twitter, Prime Minister Anthony Albanese praised Jacinda Ardern as a fierce advocate for New Zealand who'd shown the world how to lead with intellect and strength. Since she took the top job in October 2017, Ardern's Prime Ministership has been marked by several significant crises. One thing that she's absolutely proven, she's got you know, a, a real master skill and is staying calm. Dr Suze Wilson is a senior lecturer in leadership at Massey University in Auckland. She says Ardern's legacy will be shaped by her response to the COVID-19 pandemic and, most notably, to the Christchurch terror attack. You know, and I think people throughout the world, frankly, were incredibly impressed by her her calm and compassionate um, demeanour uh, in the face of, you know, certainly New Zealand's worst terror attack by by some considerable margin, but also, you know, what was globally a very, very significant terrorist attack. She's been able to articulate in a really clear, down-to-earth fashion, this is the significance of what's going on here, and here is what we need to do about it. Dr Suze Wilson, a senior lecturer in leadership at Massey University. Bridget Fitzgerald, the reporter. Jacinda Ardern joined the New Zealand Labor Party in her late teens and entered Parliament in 2008. She quickly rose through the political ranks and led the party to victory in 2017, just two months after becoming leader. Matt Bamford looks back on her career. It is an absolute honour to form a government for all New Zealanders. In 2017, Jacinda Ardern led her Labor Party to an unlikely election victory, ending 10 years of National Party rule. At 37, she was the country's youngest Prime Minister since the 1800s, its third female leader. Her charisma earned global headlines, generating the phrase Jacinda mania. I am by no means the first woman to multitask. Uh, and in terms of being a woman in politics. A year later, she became only the second elected world leader to give birth while in office. There are plenty of women who carved a path and incrementally have led the way to be able to make it possible for people to look upon my time in leadership and think, yes, I can do the job and be a mother. Outside hospital with her partner Clark Gayford, Ms Ardern held their newborn daughter Neve on a short break before resuming her duties. During the Me Too movement, when women around the world railed against sexual abuse, Ms Ardern used her first address to the United Nations General Assembly to echo their calls. Me Too must become We Too. We are all in this together. As an advocate for action on climate change, Ms Ardern won international praise. This is about being on the right side of history. And Do you want to be a leader that you look back in time and say that you were on the wrong side of the argument when the world was crying out for a solution. Well said. One of her biggest challenges came in 2019, when a gunman stormed a Christchurch mosque, killing 51 worshippers and injuring dozens more. What I can say is that it is clear that this is one of New Zealand's darkest days. Clearly what has happened here is an extraordinary and unprecedented act of violence. 
it is clear that this can now only be described as a terrorist attack. Her response was swift. A day after the massacre, she pledged to outlaw semi-automatic weapons and assault rifles. I can tell you one thing right now. Our gun laws will change. Her outreach to the Muslim community touched many people. New Zealand is united in its grief and we are united in our grief. Thank you very much. Wearing a black hijab, Jacinda Ardern visited families of survivors. Embracing them as they grieved, she led the nation in mourning. Later that year, she confronted a second tragedy, a volcanic eruption on White Island that left 22 people dead, many overseas tourists. I say to those who have lost and grieve, you are forever linked to our nation and we will hold you close. The arrival of the pandemic brought more challenges. New Zealand went hard and fast. From 11.59pm tonight, we will close our border to any non-residents and citizens attempting to travel here. Its elimination strategy helped keep the virus at bay. There were a few diplomatic tussles as well, like this one with Australia's then Prime Minister Scott Morrison on the deportation of New Zealand citizens. Send back Kiwis genuine Kiwis, do not deport your people and your problems. I respect the positions that are put forward by Prime Minister Ardern, uh, but in our government's view, uh, that is not in Australia's national interest. She also faced blatant sexism, as recently as November last year, during a visit by Finland's Prime Minister, Sanna Marin. Yeah, a lot of people will be wondering, are you two meeting just because, you know, you're similar in age and, you know, got a lot of, you know, common stuff there, you know, when you got into politics and stuff, or can Kiwis actually expect to see more deals so between our two countries down the line? Because my there first, is... I mean, my first question is, I wonder whether or not anyone ever asked Barack Obama and John Key if they met because they were of similar age. After leading the Labor Party to a landslide win in 2020, Jacinda Ardern's popularity waned in recent years. Announcing her retirement today, she offered this message to the leaders of the future. You can be kind, but strong. Empathetic but decisive, optimistic but focused, that you can be your own kind of leader, one that knows when it's time to go. New Zealand's outgoing Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern, Matt Bamford reporting. Dr Bryce Edwards is a political analyst at Victoria University of Wellington. He's not surprised Ms Ardern has decided to step down as New Zealand's Prime Minister. I think everyone has seen the signs in the sense of the opinion polls have been plummeting for the Labor government. This really occurred about a a year after the last general election. You have to remember that in 2020, uh, the Labor government was re-elected with an historic 50% of the vote. And um, this was on the basis of the fact that the government had, uh, and the country had beaten the first wave of COVID and the, the public was very appreciative of that. Then, of course, we had second waves, Delta, Omicron, and that was not so well uh, handled by the government, uh, by the country. And and really the population started to lose its trust in Ardern and the government. We started to have effects of maybe the COVID hangover uh, economically. Um, and there were lots of other issues in society that 
people were getting quite disgruntled about housing crisis, inequality, uh, lack of progress on climate change. And there was a sense that Ardern and her government just weren't delivering on things anymore. And so in recent polls in the last six months, I've kind of been around 32%. So that's really been a third of their support has dropped away. And support again for Jacinda Ardern herself has plummeted as well. Can Labor win the election in October under a new leader? Or do you think Ms Ardern's stepping down is is a gift to the opposition leader, Chris Luxon? Look, it was already (laughs) incredibly difficult. And I I think this makes it worse. Um, It does have a a kind of a look of cutting and run um, or a hospital pass to her colleagues. And, you know, that might not be fair, but it is the effect, the psychological effect that lots of voters will have that even the Prime Minister doesn't think that she can get re-elected, so she's departing early. Um, So, and the people that could replace Ardern don't look like they're really of any sort of calibre similar to her. Grant Robertson is the Deputy Prime Minister and he is highly regarded. He has um, huge name recognition uh, but today he also surprised everyone by saying that he won't run for being Prime Minister and so that leaves a number of other yeah, cabinet ministers that would be perfectly you know, adequate, capable Prime Ministers but they won't be Jacinda Ardern, they won't have that flair. And really what we need at the moment, or what the government needs, is someone that can actually be a bit more dynamic and present a very fresh, dynamic new face. Earlier today on our The World Today program, we heard Radio New Zealand presenter Nathan Radave describe Ms Ardern as the best Prime Minister New Zealand's had in the last 50 years. How do you see her legacy? I think that you know that's a that's a correct assessment uh, when you look at the things that she achieved, especially the COVID um, response, and she had to deal with lots of other crises around, um, especially the Christchurch mosque attack. Um, but she's a rather tragic figure at the same time, and all those things that she said she was in politics to achieve, especially around uh, climate change and child poverty, that may have got worse under her watch. So I I think it's going to be a very divided legacy. She's been widely admired overseas. How do you see the role she's played on on the world stage and and her relationship with Australia? Well, on the world stage, of course, you know, she she came onto the the scene um, not that long after Donald Trump had been elected. And for progressives, for cosmopolitans around the world, Ardern presented a bit of a light, a bit of a, you know, a hope that, you know, here's someone that's the opposite of Donald Trump. She's young, she's female, she's charismatic, she's progressive. You know, she gave birth in office and it seemed to be a model for, um, you know, a better world. Um, So, you know, I think a lot of global audiences will be a bit more shocked than even New Zealanders are by her standing down because they haven't really seen um, the way the economy has turned and some of the difficult challenges that uh, this government has, has sort of stumbled on.
Dr Bryce Edwards, a political analyst at Victoria University of Wellington. This is PM. I'm Samantha Donovan. Ahead are crocodiles moving south. Alarm in Queensland with a sighting on North Stradbroke Island. In some areas, the rivers or the habitat is starting to fill up, being very sort of territorial animals. For young males in particular, there might be nowhere else to go. They're coming south looking for new spots. Experienced aviators are urging caution over the push for single pilot flights after a mayday was issued by a Qantas flight from Auckland to Sydney yesterday. The plane fortunately landed safely after one of its engines failed, but pilots argue it's proof of the need to have two officers in the cockpit. Neil Whitehead reports. If you fly, it's the stuff of nightmares. Yesterday, Qantas flight QF144 issued a mayday call on its way from Auckland to Sydney after one of the Boeing 737's engines failed. As it approached its destination, it was calling PAN, declaring an urgent but not life-threatening situation. The flight landed safely in Sydney. An investigation into what caused the plane's engine to fail has now begun. Doug Drury is head of aviation at Central Queensland University. They did a great job. They did exactly as they have been trained. Uh, We spend a lot of time in simulators throughout the year practicing maneuvers such as this. And we do that so that when it happens in real life, which it rarely ever does, I mean, it happened to me once in my career, you know, we were ready for it. Qantas pilots agree. Mark Hoffmeyer is vice president of the Australian and International Pilots Association and a Qantas first officer. You know, we all um, train every year and we do practice ones in the simulator for this very reason, so that if, you know, it does come up as an unexpected, it's handled correctly. And I think yesterday was a really good example of how our our members um, handled the situation really well and a safe outcome was achieved. Mm. And what does that practice look like in the simulator? What are you doing? You know, one of the things is we, we tend to practice engine failures at the most critical point, which is just on rotation of taking off. Um, obviously, yesterday it was a bit different because that was one in the cruise. What happens basically when you're up at high altitude, if you lose an engine, the aircraft is unable to maintain that high altitude because it's now on one engine. So they would basically, they run through a bunch of checklists. They then commence what we refer to as a drift down procedure down to an altitude of about 20,000 feet where the aircraft can comfortably fly along on one engine. Um, And then they have to go through the process of um, assessing where they're going to go, what they're going to do. He says that difficult situation shows why single pilot flights are a bad idea. Yesterday was a really good example of why you need two well-trained, well-rested pilots flying an aeroplane. Those two pilots would have worked as a team to basically support each other to work it out. Regulators in dozens of countries are pushing the UN's International Civil Aviation Organization to cut back to a single pilot in some commercial flights as automation technology advances. Airbus aims to certify a jet for single pilot operations during high altitude crews as soon as 2025. But that's triggered a backlash among pilots. Here's Doug Drury again. I'm not a fan of the single pilot rule. High percentage, 96.9% of all events are captured and trapped before they become problematic. But, you know, that last little percentage when the pilot is kind of stunned, like, what is that? I don't recognize this at all. 
you know, if you have one person there, you don't have somebody else there who can say, um, I think we should look at this because that doesn't look normal. Another Qantas flight to Fiji coincidentally encountered problems today. The airline said it was turned back to Sydney as a precaution this morning after pilots received a warning about a potential mechanical issue. Steve Pavinas is Federal Secretary of the Australian Licensed Aircraft Engineers Association. A lot of these things are just routine or regular events that do occur when you're on aircraft. There are so many indicators and things that are monitored. And what I've seen on the Qantas aircraft lately that have either turned back or made unscheduled stops is that none of these things seem to be related. There's nothing in common that would raise any cause for concern. It's just, you know, a point in time where some of them have occurred around the same time and people get a little bit concerned because of what they read in the press, but in reality, there's nothing really wrong. Qantas declined to comment on the future of single pilot flights, but its chief executive, Alan Joyce, has previously said the airline won't be pushing to adopt them. Neil Whitehead reporting. Australia has added more than a million residents since the end of 2019, despite the country's strict border closures early on in the pandemic. New analysis from consultants KPMG shows nearly a quarter of those residents have settled in the nation's top 10 fastest growing areas. Here's Rachel Hayter. The city of Wyndham on Melbourne's western edge is the fastest growing area in the country. Between December 2019 and last year, Wyndham's population grew by 34,500 people. The city's mayor, Councillor Susan McIntyre, says many of those new residents are still very small. We have between 110 and 130 babies born a week here in Wyndham. So that means that we need the equivalent of a new school every five weeks. Wyndham covers almost 20 suburbs, including Hoppers Crossing and Point Cook, and more than half of the city's 315,000 people speak a language other than English. Over 48% of our population is born overseas, so we have seen that sort of growth from across the world and it is really that vibrant and rich place to live. But Councillor McIntyre says Wyndham's booming population is putting pressure on local services. Schools is a key one for us, schools transport, so we're looking at things like bus services and also things like our local rail network. So we really need to have the Western Rail Plan realised with more services, more train stations and really connecting those regional and metro lines. Like in other fast growing areas of the country, part of Wyndham's appeal is its affordability. KPMG Director of Planning and Infrastructure Terry Rawnsley says the COVID cash rate was a driver in Wyndham's citizen surge. With the pandemic's onset, we had sort of a very dramatic re- reduction in interest rates, which made um, housing much more uh, home ownership much more affordable for um, first home buyers. So those cut interest rates, which was sort of related to the pandemic, saw people have the opportunity to buy their own home. Greenfield's developments in Sydney, Brisbane and Melbourne all saw a spike in growth during the pandemic. Blacktown North in Sydney's northwest was the second fastest growing area in Australia. Joey Maloney is a senior associate in the Economic Policy Program at the Grattan Institute. Historically, that's been driven by the lack of affordable housing closer to the city and the restrictions on building higher density housing 
closer to the city. So people looking for an affordable family home are pushed to the urban fringe. He says that urban sprawl can be bad for people's quality of life. You're adding commute time, which reduces the amount of time that they have day to day to spend with family or to do other things that they might prefer to be doing. But also urban sprawl fosters a sort of car-reliant society where people are less likely to do to be able to walk around and get that little bit of impromptu exercise. There's also an environmental impact in that cities that are more dense have a lower per-person carbon footprint. But he says this data shows a new short-term trend. One of the things that came out of COVID was everyone wanted a bit more space with everyone working from home and People locked down. People were interested in having a larger home. And I think it makes sense that given we're still trying to catch up on having more density in the inner suburbs, that people are looking for bigger houses on the urban fringe to give themselves the space that they want now. Terry Ronsley says over the last three years, many Australians were searching for a sea change or a tree change. We also saw a lot of regional areas pick up not necessarily huge amounts of people, but quite strong growth rates. So uh, the Great Ocean Road, um, the Surf Coast in Victoria, and um, Newcastle and the surrounding areas in New South Wales, and of course the Sunshine Coast and Gold Coast. Back in the city of Wyndham, Mayor Susan McIntyre says forecasts show the population boom is not about to slow anytime soon going forward, we are predicted to have over half a million, so over 505,000 residents by 2040. So our growth has been massive and is going to continue to be so. The Mayor of Wyndham in Melbourne, Susan McIntyre, Rachel Hayter with that report. Well, as if swimmers at Queensland beaches didn't have enough to worry about, stingers and sharks, wild surf, the sun and now possibly crocodiles. An Aboriginal custodian on Minjeriba or North Stradbroke Island off Brisbane says he saw a sizeable crocodile yesterday. Today, another possible sighting in the seaside suburb of Manly in Brisbane's East. Rachel Mealy has more. Mark Jones has no doubt what he saw. A croc that uh, came up and I, I, I sort of wanted to be doubted at first and it actually sunk and went under the water and come back up again. So that was uh, confirmation. And also when the, my customers seen it, that just said, well, let's uh, move away and go the other way. The owner of Stratty Adventures was running a kayak tour along the edge of the mangroves at Myora Springs on Minjeriba, North Stradbroke Island. Like it sort of didn't head our way, that was the main thing. I would have been more concerned if it headed our way, but it didn't. It just stayed stayed its distance, so we didn't go mm. into surroundings. We just left. We went the other way. Now, Queensland wildlife rangers are searching waterways on the island. Colleagues with experience in crocodile management have been flown from North Queensland to help. Jacob Martin is the local Quandamooka ranger in charge of the search. We've been out looking at no sites here on Stratty. The Queensland Department of Environment says there's been another report of a crocodile off Manly Channel in Brisbane's east, which is on the other side of Moreton Bay from Minjeriba. Jacob Martin says he was shocked to hear the first reported sighting. If it wasn't my boss that come to get me, I probably wouldn't have got out of my office chair, you know, I would have said to the rest of the rangers, like, go on, go be serious with somebody else. Like, yeah, 
pretty unbelievable. Like, it's a busy time on Minjerabar, Stradbroke Island. Accommodation is at near capacity and the croc has been the talk of the island. Some people are calling us crazy. Others are, you know, coming through with stories of sightings over the years. Elders are telling us stories of sightings over the years. Um, but yeah, there's a lot, a lot of people here that think it isn't true, a lot of people that believe it, so they have mixed emotions. But one man isn't surprised at all. Associate Professor Stephen Salisbury is a crocodile expert at the University of Queensland's School of Biological Sciences. Given the warm weather, the warm water, maybe some of the, the storm activity that's happened recently, those factors could play into this. He says crocodile populations along the Queensland coast have recovered since being hunted during the 1950s and 60s. In some areas, the rivers might be sort of, well, the habitat that crocs typically like is starting to fill up and being very sort of territorial animals, for the young males in particular, there might be nowhere else to go because the bigger males have already got the run of a stretch of, of mangroves. So they're coming south looking for, for new spots and, you know, mangroves around Moreton Bay probably look pretty good right now. Professor Salisbury says crocodiles can swim 20 or 30 kilometres a day. When you think about the Gold Coast, a lot of the areas around Brisbane and even parts of the Sunshine Coast, a lot of the suitable habitat has been heavily urbanised. There's a lot of boat traffic and those kind of things are probably going to scare most crocs away. They're usually quite timid, but, you know, depending on, on what the pressures are within the population, that could change. The Environment Department says if a crocodile was found, it would be removed and returned to waters further north. Professor Salisbury says it's time to get the message out to swimmers. Crocs are present in these areas. People really need to be crocwise. The most dangerous place to be is at the water's edge um, because that's where crocodiles, as ambush predators, they've, they've mastered the art of being stealthy and, and then being very fast and, and very strong. Um, and people should be staying away from those areas right now because croc attacks are a real thing. Associate Professor Stephen Salisbury, a crocodile expert at the University of Queensland. I'll be heeding his advice. Rachel Mealy with that report. Thanks for joining me for PM. I'm Samantha Donovan. Do head to the PM webpage for all our interviews and reports to share. And you can catch the program live or later on the ABC Listen app. We'll be back at the same time tomorrow. I hope you have a very good night. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.